Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could join us today. I'm excited to introduce you to today's guest, who worked for three decades in public education to make the lives of children better. And now she's focusing on giving kids a healthy planet that they can thrive in. Brenda Caselius is the new executive director of Fresh Energy. That is a nonprofit aimed at transitioning Minnesota to clean energy. She formerly worked for three decades in public education, as I mentioned. Good morning, Brenda. It's so great to be with you and to see you again. All right. Nice to see you. Uh, you've got that, that new job glow, I right. want everybody to know. Three right. weeks in the new job. Well, Brenda was the first African-American woman in Minnesota history to serve as the state commissioner of education, and she led the department from 2011 to 2019. And then Dr. Caselius headed to the East Coast to serve as the superintendent of Boston Public Schools from 2019 to 2022. She led the district through the COVID-19 pandemic and played a key role in creating a climate plan that makes schools in Boston more energy efficient and environmentally friendly. Well, today, Brenda is also mentoring women of color who are school district superintendents and leaders of large organizations. Her life uh, growing up looked a lot different than it does now. She grew up in public housing in Minneapolis and lived in poverty. And as I talk with her today about her life story, I want to hear from you too. I want to know, have you come from humble beginnings and now consider yourself to have defied a path of obstacles? The phone lines are open and here are the numbers you can call. You can call us at 651 227 6000. Again, the number is 651 227 6000. You can also call 800 242 2828. So, Brenda, you've had all these big jobs, uh, <laughs> but you've shared with me recently that what is increasingly important to you now in this chapter of life is to talk openly about your childhood. Yes. And I, I want to know why. Well, you know, I think that it's important um, to really reflect as you get older on your path of life. And, um, you know, I've often said that, yes, I grew up poor as a child, um, grew up on poverty. I sold flowers on the street corners. And I that was hard, but I never had a poverty of love. Um, I had people around me who made a difference and who wove a, a network of support for me so that I could be successful. And I dedicated my life to being able to do the exact same for thousands of children that um, have that I've been fortunate to serve. And I think that if we together can find ways to network support systems for children, they can and they will succeed. For instance, I had Head Start growing up as a child, and that program made a difference for so many uh, people that I bump into each and every day. For folks not familiar with Head Start, what is that? Head Start is a program for um, families and for children, particularly. It's a preschool program mm -hmm. to get them ready. But it also is a support for the family and for mothers to get on their feet and to have a support network, which is amazing. It's for the poorest of kids. Um, it also, I had in my community, I lived in the Glendale Projects at the time, uh, we had a bookmobile that came into the projects um, every week, and I learned how to read and to get books. There was a park nearby with a vast array of programs, athletics programs, and programs that were teaching us culture. And it was wonderful to have adults in my 
community who took after me. And then there were coaches on athletic teams and teachers who made just an incredible difference. I love telling a story of when I was in kindergarten. And if you were good during the day and you did all of your lessons for the day, she'd sit us down at the end of the day and put us in a circle. And then she'd take a little wand. And if you were good, she'd tap our head with it and it would light up. And boy, we thought that was just magic. And um, certainly, I'm sure she had just a button on the other end. But you seem to remember that as if it were yesterday. It was. And, you know, there were so many things that were so instrumental in developing my character, who I am today, and why I give back each and every day. And so how do you think growing up the way that you did shape your sense of of purpose? Because did you grow up thinking, I want to be rich one day? Or what were you thinking? (laughs) Well, you know, growing up as a teacher, you're never going to be rich, (laughs) unfortunately. And just to say we should pay our teachers more. Um, But I, I just knew what my very first job was being a camp counselor. I had the opportunity to go to camp every two weeks. Um, It was, uh, excuse me, in the summer for two weeks. And it was life changing for me to go to camp. A summer camp. A summer camp. And I think every kid should go to a summer camp. You learn survival skills, you learn how to relationships, you learn how to swim, you learn how to get along with folks. But how did how did your family swing that if you were it was free. It was free. It was free for us. It was a it was a camp for underprivileged kids called Camp Manikiki. I think it was the Pillsbury Weight House that put it on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were able to go. And then uh, I aged out and became a counselor there. And then I worked for St. Joseph's Abused and Neglected Children for Abused and Neglected Children. And that just had such an incredible impact on my life to see these children. And I just knew I wanted to give back um, to children and to make sure that they got the same kind of networked support that I got so that I could give back and and make a difference in the world. So when you were a child, do you think people looked at you and said, oh, uh, she's someone that's going to grow up and, and get a doctorate degree and have all of these leadership positions? Or do you think people maybe didn't have great expectations of you? Or, or do you think folks would, would have been surprised to know what you would eventually become? You know, uh, my nickname was Peanuts. <laughs> and I got Why? Uh, Why? <laughs> I was supposed to be twins. And I came oh. out as just one baby. And oh. so um, the doctor was like, well, you sure got yourself one big peanut there. <laughs> oh. um, and so came out as one baby. Um, and uh, there was never another twin, though. So it was mm-hmm. just they mis- made a mistake with my mother. Um, and anyways, so you know, I just got a lot of love. And I was just kind of this rambunctious, um, go getting child. And I don't think anyone thought that I wasn't going to make it. As a matter of fact, I think that everyone breathed into me that you can do whatever you want to do. And my dad was very instrumental to that. My dad uh, was college educated, all of my, my grandparents on my dad's side were college educated, had their doctorates. And so there was a big expectation that I was going to you know, definitely go to college. Um, and um, even though my dad didn't live with us for much of much of my um, growing up um, years, my early years, at least, and then he joined the family again back when I was in middle school, which made a, a huge difference um, for me. And so he had these expectations and, and the family expectations that I would absolutely do something. But as a black woman, he would always tell me, you're going to have to work twice as hard because you're invisible. Um, and so I learned hard lessons from my dad on what it would be to be a black woman navigating in this world and and um, how hard that would be and that I would have to do 
I would have to work much harder than anyone else. And has that been true? I believe that that has been true. And I believe it's true for many black women. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, we prove ourselves. I don't meet very many black women superintendents who don't have their doctorate. And I think it's because there is a, a, a point of entry and legitimacy that you deserve this position. And we, you know, go that extra mile to make sure that we are fully prepared and um, have the credibility behind us and actually to to get the job done. I think one thing that I did get underestimated for for a long time was just because I looked so young. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I always was just kind of, um, you know, just kind of out there pushing, pushing, pushing the envelope all the time. We're already getting some phone calls uh, as we talk with uh, Brenda Caselius, who has a new job uh, leading Fresh Energy, but has worked, uh, as I mentioned, for three decades in education, uh, making this pivot from from kids to climate. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But uh, we're also talking about uh, humble beginnings and and our childhood experiences and how they shape us as adults. And I want to hear your stories, too. You can call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2800. 28, and uh, we're getting some phone calls already, so I want to make sure okay. we bring these in while people All have right. time to talk with us. Uh, in White Bear Lake, Leah is on the phone. Good morning, Leah. What do you want to share with us? Hi, Angela. Hi. I'm so glad you're covering this topic. I am in my mid-30s, and I'm a first-generation college graduate. Um, grew up with a single mom in poverty and public housing, on food stamps, in, in Head Start, all of those things. And um, now in my mid-30s, I... Um, live a middle-class to upper-middle-class lifestyle, and um, I've broken through those barriers. I'm still the first in my family to do that, still have family in poverty, um, but I have life that I've worked really hard for that I'm really proud of, and um, yeah, it's, it's just it's, it's interesting to see. Mm. That's Leah in White Bear Lake. Thank you, Leah. Yeah, that's just awesome. Um, I bet that you were able to really take advantage of your community and the opportunities that came in front of you and then opening up any doors that were available to you. I also was a single mother, um, found, found myself um, having a child um, in my senior year of college. And, you know, I had a choice to make quit school um, and have the baby or not have the baby. And, you know, I wanted to continue uh, to have this child. And so I did. I took one semester off of of college and finished the next semester. Uh, was very determined that I was not going to, you know, go on welfare and um, not make it for this child and single parented for uh, 10 years. And um, he's wonderful. He has a master's degree now. He's 34. He's a videographer, photographer, super proud of him. Um, But I also had, you know, I was on WIC and was able to take care, take some programs. So my advice to people is that these programs exist to help people get a hand up. Mm -hmm. And you take advantage of them while they are there because they are there to help you uh, make it and, and, be the best person that you can be. And I couldn't have gone to school and finished night school and single parented and been gotten my teaching degree and gotten my master's degree without that kind of support in the early years that he was a baby. I also got daycare assistance. Mm-hmm. You know, those kinds of things really do help new mothers to be able to still continue their education and to get their careers and, and keep on the path. 
in uh, Mendota Heights. We have another listener uh, calling in. This is Mike. Good morning, Mike. Go ahead. What do you want to add to the conversation? Yeah, good morning. Yeah, I have a similar background to your, your guest today. Um, I grew up in St. Paul, and the uh, first home was a tenement down in the old West Side Flats, uh, which is no longer there. Mm-hmm. The neighborhood was demolished. but uh, And then uh, we moved to public housing after we were flooded out twice by the Mississippi. Um, my father died when I was five, <clears throat> and he left uh, my mother with four children mm-hmm. under the age of ten. Uh, but I, I think we've all done well. My three siblings and I between us, uh, we've earned four bachelor degrees, two master's, one Ph.D., and a medical doctor. Wow. And um, I worked, uh, and I'm retired now, but I spent my career as a primarily as a special education teacher mm-hmm. and did a little coaching as well. Um, and uh, it was interesting, the last uh, few years, my siblings and I worked on a family history memoir project, and we were able to review all of the elements that... Mm-hmm. Uh, allowed us to the seeds succeed. that that were planted, mm-hmm. and, and so Mike, what do you think about uh, the idea that if someone were to meet you and your siblings today, they probably would have never imagined what your childhood was a lo- was like? Probably not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And uh, that is my own personal mm-hmm. story. Thank you, uh, Mike in Mendota Heights. I grew up in rural poverty uh, without my parents. My grandparents raised me. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of dysfunction in my mm-hmm. family. And I meet, I think, a lot of people today, mm-hmm. and they are surprised by that. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know what the answer is to it, but I've learned that you don't judge people That's right. uh, by who they are in the moment. It's a yeah. snapshot in time that I'm anything actually, is possible. I'm, I'm actually really careful when I meet children. They see me and they mm-hmm. see, oh, the super superintendent or they see the commissioner and they just think, oh, she's always had it. I'm always telling them my humble beginning story because I think it's important. And I have always worked with children who are mostly living in poverty um, throughout most of my career and in concentrated poverty. And so it's so important for them to have role models and people that they can see that have persevered and have made it through. And not that you can look at somebody and think, oh, they've just always had it that way. Right. Yeah. But that is that's yep. the tendency. And this yep. brings us to another important uh, um, thing that you're doing right now, the work you're doing. You're writing a, a children's book series about your childhood, uh, about growing up in Minneapolis, mm-hmm. uh, about being in public housing and uh, living in poverty. What motivates you to do that? Tell us about what these stories are. I think it's important for children to to know that their situation is okay um, and that they can find the nuggets of beauty and joy in that moment of their situation and that they don't have to feel sorry for themselves. Find find the the wonderful pieces of humanity that are your current situation. You know, a lot of people feel sorry for, for poor people, and there's a lot of poor people who are really happy. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that everybody thinks that all the time. They think you have to be rich to be happy. But and the there's a lot of rich people who aren't happy too. <laughs> so. Right. The definition of poor, we're talking about money yeah. and resources. But right. you said, you know... But what about love? Right. And, you, there and was no poverty joy. of love. And that's right. right. That's right. And so with the children's books, I'm hoping that I can il- illustrate to children that what you have in the gift of life and family and community 
is bigger than money. And the opportunities that are available to you sometimes are right in front of you. And so take those. And I was able, you know, go to the bookmobile, go to the local park, go to um, join athletic clubs. These are the things, these social networks and and community that's going to help you live out your dreams. So in the children's book series, uh, are you the character? Is it someone else? Do we see a little Brenda or where? (laughs) It is. It's my life story. Um, Mm -hmm. So it is, you know, it's Peanuts. And so, you know, it's Peanuts in the Projects uh, is my (laughs) first book. Yes. Yes. If that's the actual title. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it will be once I get published, but that's kind of my what I'm in, what's inspiring me right now. And then it's Peanuts goes to camp and Peanuts on the soc- soccer team and Peanuts goes to Head Start and Peanuts mm-hmm. in kindergarten. But there are all these little stories and about the network and mm-hmm. about the support system that I had and um, just a way to show a path for children and for them to to have um, a, a role model and to be able to see that and, in their path. The illustrations? I'm still looking for an illustrator, so I have to oh. find an illustrator. Um, what would you like the, it to look like? Oh, just a, a, a really joyful, colorful, um, you know, um, characterization of the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm trying to find, a, a, I hope I can find an illustrator of color. A woman, hopefully, mm-hmm. and um, to bring it to life. Yeah, to bring it to life. All right. Uh, if you're joining us, uh, just joining us, we're talking to uh, Brenda Casellas, a former education commissioner for the state of Minnesota, who recently stepped into a new job as executive director of Fresh Energy. Now, that is a nonprofit that aims to transition Minnesota to renewable energy, and um, she's sharing her experiences, uh, her childhood experiences, and how they shaped her as an adult. As we talk today, and I want to know from you, our listeners. Have you come from humble beginnings and now consider yourself to have defied a path of obstacles? Uh, the phone lines are open. You can call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. So let's talk about this new job. Uh, you have a doctorate degree in education. You were the former education commissioner for the state. You've been the superintendent of Boston Public Schools. Uh, now you're back here in Minnesota and you've completed what uh, Chris Farrell and I like to call a, a big <laughs> career pivot. You did a big pivot from kids to climate. So let's talk about this job as the executive director of Fresh Energy. Uh, Fresh Energy is new to me. Uh, Mm -hmm. Tell me about this company and what it does and what you will be doing. So Fresh Energy is about making bold policy for a just and clean transition to getting to net zero. And really, it's around climate and making the planet healthier. I say it's making it healthier for our kids and really for all of us. Um, It is an organization of about 35 um, incredibly talented, smart um, individuals who uh, advise, work with the Public Utilities Commission, and also work with industry, buildings, trades, um, to do work to transition us off of fossil fuels, which is which are poisoning our climate, to um, clean energy and renewables. And so I'm following a terrific leader, Michael Noble, who was the founder 
I used to have advice like never follow a really strong you know, founding leader, you know, mm-hmm. but I asked uh, in the interview if I could transition with him for a few weeks and I was given that gift and he is amazing and he's into what he calls rewiring and um, will, I sh- will, I'm sure, find many, many ways to give back to the community and still continue to support Fresh Energy. Well, some people may think it's odd that you have to go from education to climate. Uh, what's the connection uh, between those two industries? Well, you know, I was able to, in Boston to work really closely with the youth as, as throughout my entire career. I, I mostly worked with middle and high schoolers. Um, and they always were talking about, you know, um, climate issues. And particularly, I read uh, several months ago a study that showed that children were having significant issues with their mental health. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then when I dug deeper into the data, about 48% of our students said they were having significant concern and anxiety and stress over climate change. Climate anxiety. We've done yes. shows on it. It's real. And, and it is real and kids feel it. And I think they're making life choices because of it. I think uh, they're not having families. Um, We've done shows on that too. It's uh, making cho- choosing to be child free. That, that's right, right. You know, because they're Adults. like, well, why would I raise my child into this world? And that's it just hurts my soul, you know. And so I think that, you know, if we can give children an equitable and excellent education, we've got to give them a planet in which they can use it in, uh, something that gives them hope and gives them sense of agency. I'm hoping at Fresh Energy we'll be able to um, do more partnering with other organizations that are working with youth around their agency, around this issue, and really supporting students and making a difference because now we have these huge goals that Biden has set out in the Inflation Reduction Act to become net zero by 2050, I believe, and uh, Governor Walls with all clean energy by 2040. And so, you know, uh, us in in this, you know, my age group, we're getting older and we're going to have to hand this over to Mm -hmm. our kids to take care of. And so it's going to be really important that they have the tools, the agency, and the know-how to actually get this done. So recently, uh, state lawmakers uh, passed a bill to invest $2 billion uh, toward a carbon-free economy. And uh, that package uh, includes investing in putting solar panels on schools and other public buildings, um, acquiring electric school buses. And um, some of that that money would allow homeowners to add electric appliances. What do you make of that? Uh, How much of a difference do you think that will make? It's going to make a huge difference. And the more that we can educate our children, the more that we can educate the public and all of our communities that we have to move quickly. They're calling this the decisive decade. We have about 10 years to turn back this clock and heal our planet. And so we've got to we've got to take a serious look. And I was proud of Governor Walls and the legislature and all of the advocates who fought for this many, many years. Finally, we are getting the tools, the resources, and the funding to actually get this done. Now, Fresh Energy, there's an event coming up um, that's called Paving the Way to Justice 40 uh, that you're going to be speaking at. What is that event, and when is it happening? That is a a coalition of um, advocates who are getting together. Justice 40 is a a policy passed by um, 
President Biden stating that 40% of all of the resources of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act and are going to um, go to uh, underserved communities. And we have a similar program here that Governor Walls also uh, put forward. And, you know, it's taking a strong focus on equity and access for communities who have been historically um, not included or underserved. When we think about a greener climate, there's a role the government can play. There's a role that nonprofits can play. But when we look back to what we started talking about, living in public housing and and uh, maybe not having a lot of, of resources or money, what do you think people or families can do that, you know, can still contribute to a greener climate? Yeah, so there's a lot that they can do. And that's a lot of the work that many advocates and Fresh Energy do is educating and making sure that everybody has access to the information. Um, certainly switching over their stoves, um, you know, to induction stoves or electric stoves, um, looking at HVAC systems, weatherization of their homes. Um, some people are looking at putting solar on their um, mm-hmm. on their on their buildings. You know, you can simply, you know, recycle um, your waste better. Um, farmers looking at their fertilizer use. And, um, you know, there's just so many things that we all collectively can do. Purchasing an EV car, um, industry looking at their standards and how much they're polluting the air. There's just, it's going to take an all hands on deck. It's going to take an every single sector coming together if we're going to really tackle this problem. And and Minnesota is developing the plan to be a leader in the nation in doing so. We're talking with Brenda Caselius, the former education commissioner here in Minnesota, and now the executive director of Fresh Energy. Uh, Brenda sharing uh, her new project, writing a, a series of children's books about her own childhood experience uh, living in Minneapolis and uh, defying the odds and becoming a leader. And so I want to hear your stories, too. Call us at 651 or 800-242-2828. Let's take a phone call uh, from Minneapolis. This is Jim, who's on the line. Jim, thank you for waiting and for calling in. What do you want to tell us? Hi there. Well, I'm a bit of a variation. I was raised in a middle-class family in White Bear Lake, Mm -hmm. but I, leaving childhood, had on what's called an an eight, a score of eight on what's called the adverse childhood experience. Mm -hmm. uh, And that means it was a tough childhood. And I... I'm fortunate that I become an addict because that broke broke me. And about 20 years ago, I had to rebuild, and I've been able to find joy and happiness every day in connection. Mm-hmm. I, I grew up disconnected from everybody, but I had to. I went through a program that allowed me to help other people who've gone through the same stuff that I've done, and so I'm connected to a wonderful fam- family, and and I oh. I feel like I'm the luckiest person around. So it's a it was definitely a humbling. Uh, being all, feeling all alone mm-hmm. most of my life. I want to do one shout out to a teacher of mine, mm-hmm. Dave Jazz, who was, uh, he, he was just a human being who connected with people along the way. But, uh, uh, I'm here because of them. And, uh, we love a shout out to a teacher. <laughs> Thank you. That's a, a Jim in Minneapolis. I think it's a really good uh, reminder, Jim, that, you know, even families that have, uh, more, you know, and are wealthier or uh, in middle class, you know, there can be children who are still suffering, who could be neglected or abused or have other um, family 
tra- trauma, um, mm-hmm. you know, lose a parent, you know, or other things that impact a, a, your childhood. And so, you know, I was fortunate to have um, a, a mother. And even though my father wasn't always there living with us, I knew I was loved by them. And that made such a huge difference for me. And so the more that parents can bond with their children and um, or other adults and if the family mm-hmm. if the family is not there teachers counselors social workers um, ca- can be there for uh, and be a second family for children who maybe have other trauma he was talking about adverse childhood uh, experiences it's a it's a score that we give children mm-hmm. um, throughout their early childhood and and the different things like substance abuse in a home or abuse in a home or, you know, growing up in public housing and poverty or less access to nutrition or preschool, or that sort of thing. Um, you're just looking at, and the higher that score, the the more challenging it is. And sometimes money doesn't matter mm-hmm. on, on that. Uh, Brenda, we love talking about education on this show, um, as well as like young people and the youth mental health crisis. Um, you've had a lot of successes in your role as a as an educator as a leader, but what do you consider some of the achievements that you are the most proud of as having served as a superintendent in Boston, having been the education commissioner here in Minnesota? What do you look back and say, I'm so glad I put time and attention to that? Well, um, the first is the difference that you get to make in the lives of individual children. Um, I still mentor some of the students that I've been able to serve, you know, even when I was a teacher, uh, Teresa, big shout out to you. Love you still. One of my first classes that I taught. Um, and I think then the, the other thing that I'm really proud of was when I was in Memphis with Dr. Carol Johnson, who has been an incredible mentor. And Dr. Bernadia Johnson was there as well. Um, and turning around middle schools and just working as a team to get that work done um, was really amazing to give those kids a, a difference and to work with principals who are just on fire for kids and um so turning around the middle schools there, I'm also really proud of working with uh, Governor Dayton and his commitment to children and family here in Minnesota and putting all day kindergarten in place and getting the first statewide um, anti-bullying law, our transgender toolkit that we did to protect uh, students who were transgender, um, nation leading um, toolkit. And uh, also very proud of, um, you know, the highest graduation rates that we ever had in Minnesota and um, being able to do that. And then when going to Boston, um, working with uh, Mayor Walsh at the time to get and secure $100 million to put social workers, counselors, nurses, librarians, um, and psychologists in our schools to provide the kind of wraparound services and full full service community schools um, in all of our schools in in Boston was really a triumph um, of support for our teachers who every day put in the hours um, to educate children and um, give them the support that they needed. And then just finally with Mayor Wu, you know, I had three mayors in Boston, which was challenging because Mayor Walsh went off to be Secretary of three, Labor. Three different mayors during yes, the time you were a school yes. superintendent. Three mayors and three, and, and three board chairs. Mm-hmm. So quite a bit of... Um, 
political disruption. It was during the pandemic, very challenging um, three years to navigate uh, all of that, but also coming out on the end with a new exam school policy that allowed greater access for all of Boston's children to be able to attend the three really pillar uh, historic high achieving schools in in the city, which was um, pretty, pretty amazing. One of the um, education issues that uh, I think about a lot uh, often keeps me awake at night has to do with reading and what we know about um, children uh, in Minnesota and across the nation being so behind uh, yeah. in their reading uh, skills. Uh, here in Minnesota, we know that one in three Minnesota fourth graders uh, cannot read at a basic level for their grade. And that's from, you know, recent uh, reading test results. Um, what needs to change with addressing that, how we teach reading, how it's supported uh, by by schools and, and by funding. What are we going to do about getting kids to the, the ability, helping them to learn how to read early? You you and I both learned yeah. how to read before we went to kindergarten. Yeah, yeah, I did. I, you know, I was fortunate to have Head Start, and that's a big part of it, is that children have good early childhood experiences um, and experiences with literacy. They have access to books. They have access to um, older siblings and um, teachers and um, teacher aides who can read to them and help them sound out the words and get the words. You know, right now there's a huge, and you probably, you know, NPR and NPR did this, sold a story. Podcast, yeah. Mm -hmm, Sold a a story podcast. You can still find it by Emily Hanford. Yes, it was wonderful and enlightened kind of the history of the, the reading wars and um, kind of a whole language approach and having children look at pictures and guess the words. And, you know, reading teachers and reading interventionists always knew that that's not how you teach children how to read. You have to teach them uh, phonics. They have to understand how words go together, phonemic awareness. They have to have a strong vocabulary and have access to thousands of different words because the English language is so hard to understand. You have there and there. <clears throat> They're spelled differently. They sound the same. They're there and there. <clears throat> They're there and there, right? <laughs> and and it just many, many different types of um, pronunciations and sounds to words and what they mean. And so it's really just about practicing and getting a lot of time reading. And we have to give children more time reading. They have to know uh, how to sound out words. They call it decoding words, literacy, how the words work together to create sentences, to create paragraphs. And then a huge part that we often miss and have missed is writing and making sure that children understand how to write, express themselves, communicate uh, with their words, um, and then uh, have have the interpersonal kind of relational uh, conversations uh, with one another. This is particularly different, difficult as we have had more and more children from uh, differing backgrounds come who have not had a formal education, mm-hmm. are new to country, and need uh, English language learner services. And so I think that people um, are not as um, clear about the percentages that you might see of children not reading and the num- and the more diverse that our community is getting and the language diversity within our community. So a greater need uh, for being able to make sure that children have children who speak other languages than English as their first language have the kind of supports that they need to be able to become proficient in English. And then just finally, the way that we measure um, language and the way that we measure 
proficiency, whether it's basic or whether it's at grade level, um, I think that we need some work with our standardized tests and how we measure students' reading level. And children learn at their pace. And so Mm -hmm. we have to also be willing to understand that stretch. My own son, who I was reading to, and, you know, I was a teacher, didn't what my oldest son did not read proficiently until fifth grade. Wow. And, And so, you know, I was getting very frustrated because I was like, why is my child not reading? And, you know, later found out he was had attention deficit disorder. And so, you know, it's it it caused me to know, you know, when a child also has a disability, you have to be willing to to put in those additional supports. So what advice do you have for parents? Uh, because, you know, change is coming, but change in policy, it's slow. I feel yeah. it's very slow. Yeah. And, and meanwhile, you know, these kids are getting older and moving forward. You're also a parent. You have three kids. What advice do you have for parents about, um, you know, being advocating for their kids in school and, and just being aware of what they need and providing them with what they need? Yeah. So being your kid's best advocate is really, really important and being in touch with your teachers. They have a lot of students in their class to, mm-hmm. to take care of. And so it's it's always making sure that you are um, continuing to stay in close contact with your teachers, particularly at the early years. Going to uh, ECFE, which is Early Childhood Family Education courses, mm-hmm. very early in a child's um, lifespan. You know, if you can start reading to children, uh, you know, as soon as they are are born, really, um, and start introducing them to books and and getting them to enjoy reading. Um, it's it's important getting them off of the devices and the technology um, and more onto the um, print books mm-hmm. um, so that they can feel it and turn the pages and 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 ex- ex- expand their imaginations. Yeah, it, it's time. I, I learned how to read, you know, growing up on the farm in southern Virginia. My grandmother taught me how to read because mm-hmm. she had the time to do it. Right. Yep. We didn't have a lot, but there were books in the house. That's right. And that set me up you know, for success throughout my entire school experience. So it, that that reading part, to me, it's personal because it's so empowering. Yep, it is. It and what, is. what it did for me, too, being able to read, how it expanded my imagination as I read stories. And mm-hmm. even though we weren't able to travel and go on vacation, I had an awareness of that the world was much bigger than the farm I lived on. That's right. That's right. And it just it just opens you up to so many possibilities. And, and like you said, it opens up your imaginations. Let's take another phone call uh, from a listener as we talk with Brenda Caselius about childhood experiences and how they shape us as adults as well as uh, talking about education. Uh, in Minneapolis, MJ is on the line. Hi, MJ. Hi there. Um, I want to say we all have obstacles in our our childhood, Mm -hmm. and I grew up in relative privilege in a small town in central Illinois. And over my 70 years, I've always been amazed and questioned, is growing up in poverty a privilege, a burden, or a blessing? We see so many examples, like your guests, Dr. Casellas, and yourself, other people who overcome poverty and what could be considered a burden to turn it into a blessing. And I'd really like to hear your thoughts on the motivation and the good fortune that comes with that. Mm, that's MJ in Minneapolis. Is this a a, a, a book or a chapter in your book? <laughs> that's sort of the theme in well, your children's book series yeah. about your childhood. Yeah, well, my children's books are really children's books. So right. they're just, um, they're not dense with that kind of level of uh, understanding. But, um, you know, 
I consider it my, you know, I can only speak to my own personal experience and I consider it a blessing. I wouldn't change any part of my childhood. I had, I would change some things. I would have had nicer clothes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I would have had a few things. I would have had more toys. I still shop at dark. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I thrift and all of that good stuff still. But, um, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, my mom, was such a loving and generous person and um, gave so much to others as well in her entire family. She came from, she had 10 other siblings. Mm. They lived in Northeast Minneapolis with her, with two parents and two bedroom house there in North with all those kids. Um, and they were flower peddlers. And so, you know, I went, I went change. I learned a, a work ethic. I learned that there were, um, programs to support me. I learned that there's people who loved me. I, I just, I, I wouldn't change any of it. So for, so for me personally, it was a blessing. But I know that for hundreds and thousands of children, it's not that they don't have those loving families and those loving connections. And, and so it's maybe a, living in unsafe neighborhoods yes, as well. Yes, exactly. Right? And so, um, you know, and I lived at a different time. I mean, I think in the early 70s, you know, I don't remember my community being violent, you know, and um, and challenging or gun violence and that kind of thing. You know, children are living in situations now that are extremely challenging. Um, and, and, and I think that anything we can do to help them not have to experience the pain and the suffering and the trauma of gun violence, of, um, domestic abuse or, other way, other means of neglect. Um, we have to do everything in our power. I always say it's the adults who create the conditions in which children succeed. It is absolutely up to us as adults to create better conditions for children. The children that we meet and see today uh, have experienced a pandemic and the you know impact of that. Um, they've experienced the economic downturn. Uh, when you see kids today. Um, what goes through your mind and what, what are your hopes for them? Well, they're, they're, they are strong, so and they are resilient. But I think that we have to, as adults, continue to breathe into them their worth and potential that they come to see it in themselves. That is a Stephen Covey quote that I keep by me all the time, that every time I see a child, I am constantly encouraging them and trying to make listen closely to them and see what it is that they need so that we can then fill that need. Um, and I think it's up to every single adult to help our children succeed because the pandemic was extremely difficult for our children. It was extremely difficult for our educators. It was hard for our parents and our families. And we are still healing from that. Um, and I think it will take, I think last time I was on your show, I said, I think it's going to take up to a decade for us to fully heal You did say that. Um, from, from this uh, huge trauma that all of us have felt. And I want to make sure we spend some more time thinking about this, this other work that you're doing right now, because it is also important to you, uh, coaching other educational leaders, but specifically uh, black women who yes. aspire to be or are superintendents um, in, in school districts. What is that about? And what is it that you can share with them? Or what is it that they need? 
Well, you know, I we talked a little bit earlier about how challenging it can be for black women in leadership roles and, you know, women of color and women generally um, entering into these spaces of the C-suite or entering into the superintendency or other large organizations, nonprofit and other. And I think that we have to support one another um, because it is a very challenging world to be. For, for instance, in, in education, 26% of the women um, are, uh, are, are superintendents are women. And so if we're not supporting one another, we can be in spaces where we are invisible or we are, our opinions are discounted or that we, you know, go in and feel like we have what's called imposter syndrome. And I think that, you know, we have to just, in, in you know, one of my strong colleagues, Charlene Breiner, um, I've worked with for a long time says, you know, step into your power, you know, and so we have to remind each other to step into your power. You know, you are capable, you are in the seat for a reason. God put you here to do good. And so make sure that you do that. And so for me, reaching back and supporting upcoming aspiring superintendents, especially women of color, is really part of who I want to be in this next chapter of my life. And I've learned lessons. I've kicked the wall. <laughs> it, it didn't feel good. And I don't want them to have to kick the wall. And so, you know, I think that, um, you know, paying it forward that way is just part of who I am and part of my purpose moving forward. And that support system. Absolutely. So powerful. So powerful. Um, and, you know, there's something that just kind of magical that happens with black women when we get together. And um, I just, I love it. So it's really been wonderful to be able to support other black women and be supported by them too, mm -hmm. you know. All right. Well, I want to thank you for your time. And I've enjoyed listening to you. I'm excited about this next chapter in your career. Uh, and this pivot you've made from kids to climate. Uh, we've been talking with Brenda Caselius. She is the new executive director of Fresh Energy, which is a nonprofit aimed at transitioning Minnesota to clean energy. And you may know her name from her uh, decades of working in public education. She's the former education commissioner for the state of Minnesota, as well as the former superintendent for Boston Public Schools. Thank you for being here. Thank you, uh, today, Dr. Caselius. This conversation was produced by Danelle Cloutier and made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. And if you want to hear more reporting, read more reports in our North Star Journey series, just go to mprnews.org and look for the North Star Journey link. You'll find some great reports and conversations there. And while you're listening to us, I want to remind you of something very important. Uh, NPR News, uh, we're funded by listeners like you. You know this. And because you rely on NPR's local coverage and meaningful storytelling, now is the time to really chip in. The clock is ticking down to the end of our budget year, and we want you to know that we are behind in our goals. So if you've never donated before, right now, the NPR Member Fund will match all new monthly donations for a year. You fuel NPR for your whole community, and we need your support, your financial support. So start your monthly gift today by going to mprnews.org. Uh, we are community-supported radio funded by listeners like you. So go to mprnews.org and make your first gift today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.